Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 16. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. The show continues to grow and evolve, and I'm very excited about this episode of Hacker History that we're sharing today. In this episode, we will be recounting the story of the most devastating cyber attack in history, not Petya. It's an incredible story, and joining us to tell it is none other than Amit Serper, one of the cybersecurity researchers that was instrumental in determining how to mitigate the attack. It is an incredible story, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. It was the most destructive cyber attack anybody had ever seen before, or since, to the point where it's just hard to wrap your head around. Like, what if I told you, according to an assessment from the White House, this one virus caused the world around $10 billion in damages. You might think, huh? That's a lot of money. But can you really grasp the implications? The chaos, anxiety, and hardship that is masked in a number like that? Or just look at one victim, like the pharmaceuticals manufacturer Merck, for example. As a result of their exposure, they suffered an estimated $807 million in damages. 807 million. For FedEx, it was 400 million. Maersk, the shipping giant, around 300 million. It's tough to imagine how a company could lose hundreds of millions of dollars from one computer virus. But you'd have a sense of it if you were one of the thousands of longshoremen, truck drivers, or administrators working at one of Maersk's shipping terminals on June 28, 2017. Typically, At a terminal like the one in Elizabeth, New Jersey, you'd expect a few thousand trucks to pull in and out every day, each one carrying tens of thousands of pounds worth of consumer goods, food, manufacturing parts, you name it. Anything bound for residents or businesses in New York City or its surrounding areas. The port is a grand stage where thousands of players participate in a complex arrangement, all neatly coordinated by IT systems. There are systems for tracking time, who gets in and out, what they're picking up or dropping off, where to go, and so on. If the choreographer suddenly stops, what happens? In his book, Sandworm, Andy Greenberg wrote of the main entrance gate to the facility. Quote, The gate clerks had gone silent. Soon, hundreds of 18-wheelers were backed up in a line that stretched for miles outside the terminal. One employee at another company's nearby terminal at the same New Jersey port watched the trucks collect bumper to bumper farther than he could see. End quote. At a certain point, it became clear that nothing was going to change. Nothing was getting in or out that day. That meant trouble not just for Maersk and all the truck drivers lined up at the terminal, but also everybody all over the region relying on their deliveries. Quote, Maersk's outage could mean shelling out for exorbitant air freight delivery or risk-stalling manufacturing processes, where a single day of downtime costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Many of the containers, known as reefers, were electrified and full of perishable goods that required refrigeration. They'd have to be plugged in somewhere or their contents would rot. End quote. Some of the containers meant for pickup that day remained in limbo for months afterward and the same story repeated itself at 17 other Maersk terminals around the globe. L.A., Mumbai, 
Rotterdam, and more. Now think about all the furniture, clothing, and gifts that were delayed, and how it affected people's lives. All the machinery left idling on factory floors, waiting for a crucial missing part. And everybody left waiting for those machines to be completed. All the food that went to waste, and what restaurants and supermarkets had to do to deal with it, simply because of what a little computer code did to a single company. One company among thousands more. In other parts of the world, the virus had even worse consequences than this. Take even the most insignificant little corner of the medical industry you could think of. Nuance, a company that produces speech recognition software so that doctors can dictate changes to patients' medical records. Nuance was used at hundreds of hospitals and thousands of clinics worldwide when its service went down. But, unlike Maersk, because of the nature of the product, its downage was much more subtle. Take what happened to one of its clients, a healthcare network called Sutter. Quote, All across Sutter's hospitals, doctors were reading changes into Nuance's transcription service. In some cases, hours of audio at a time. And unbeknownst to those physicians, none of those changes would show up in the patient's files. People scheduled to go into surgery that morning might not have the final approvals they needed to be cleared for their operations. Others, like transplant recipients whose doctors constantly monitor and adjust their drugs, might miss crucial changes in treatment. Within just 24 hours, Sutter was facing a backlog of 1.4 million changes to patients' records, every one which might have had a real impact on the health of a human being. End quote. The scary part wasn't how many records were affected, but what each individual instance of failure meant for a real, live human. At one American hospital, for example, Greenberg met a technician who'd face the kind of life-or-death scenario you just don't expect when you pursue a career in computers. Quote, A furious co-worker on the edge of panic had alerted her to two children's diagnostic reports that were missing from their medical records due to the nuance outage. Both kids were scheduled for treatment whose safety depended on their records being up to date. One had been transferred to another hospital for surgery the next morning. The IT staffer felt the blood drain from her face. Did her hospital even have a copy of the dictated record changes? Would they have to delay a potentially life-saving procedure? While the world was panicking, Amit Serper was on a pleasant trip. I was speaking at the conference in Israel the day after. Mm -hmm. And my plan for that day was to come back to my parents' house, spend some time with them, and then in the evening um, go out uh, for drinks with, uh, with some friends. What became the most eventful evening of his entire life began in total calm. I was sitting in the living room with my dad. The TV was on playing the news, a report on an emerging ransomware attack in Ukraine. My dad is not a technical person. And he was like, do, do you know what it is? Can you explain to me what's going on over there? And I, I started explaining to him. And he's like, wow, can anyone do something about it? Can you do something about it? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Amit pulled out his phone and opened a WhatsApp group he shared with other cybersecurity analysts. There was already a lively discourse going on by the time he arrived. Everybody knew that this ransomware was severe and that it moved fast. Also that it closely resembled a different ransomware which had been discovered over a year earlier called Petya. But there was a crucial missing piece. So I, I asked uh, for one of the people there to share the sample with me. 
As Amit looked over the code and his colleagues tested and analyzed it, a grim picture began to unfold. A year earlier, the world witnessed the most pernicious ransomware ever before seen. Its name was Petya. Before Petya, ransomware had always worked in just about the same way. It infected a computer through one means or another, then located and encrypted a lot of files. Probably the ones you cared about the most. A message would pop up on screen, prompting you to pay cryptocurrency in order to get access back. Most of the time, doing so wouldn't make a difference. Petya went deeper. It reached so far down as to infect the Windows bootloader, the part of your computer responsible for booting itself up in the first place. The malware would trigger a restart, and upon the restart, instead of a Windows home screen, you would be faced with a red screen with a skull and crossbones painted on the front, a sign that your computer was all but done for. Booting into the ransomware instead of the operating system, which is something that NotPetya then tried to mimic. Hence, it was called NotPetya because it looked like Petya, but it was not Petya. NotPetya, the malware that took down Maersk, Nuance, and thousands more around the world, was like its predecessor in more ways than one. Like its ransom message, upon booting, it read in red lettering over a black screen, perhaps you are busy looking for a way to recover your files, but don't waste your time. Nobody can recover your files without our decryption service. The message included a Bitcoin wallet address where you could send $300 to receive a decryption key and a field at the foot of the page to enter the key you received. In Amit's group chat, the other researchers weren't content to concede to the hackers. They went back and forth trading data, trying to reverse engineer that decryptor, to recreate what the hacker said they alone possessed. But this was a fool's errand. The hackers were already a step ahead. So you had the message to, you know, to pay the, the ransom to the, to the threat actors and they had a Bitcoin address and everything. Um, but if, even if you would have sent them money, they, wouldn't have, they, they didn't have the ability to decrypt your files because that, that, that code didn't exist. Not Petya wasn't even ransomware. Somehow it was worse, a wiper. Unlike ransomware, which merely stows away your files, wipers are designed with the sole purpose of destruction, deleting data or corrupting it to the point of no return. And that's not the only way in which not Petya was nastier than that which came before it. Where Petya was distributed via phishing emails, emails that human beings had to write and send out manually, not Petya spread all on its own. It did so by utilizing Eternal Blue, an NSA-developed exploit of Windows Server Message Block File Sharing Protocol. Eternal Blue had been leaked to the public two months prior. Once NotPetya was executed on one machine, it would then scan the entire network and it would try to use those um, exploits to further spread throughout the network and infect more machines and encrypt them and then spread again, so on and so forth. The creators behind NotPetya implanted it in just one target, an accounting software company. But by the afternoon, it spread to every corner of the earth. By evening, it was headline news in every living room from Rotterdam to Tel Aviv. Amit didn't even have a Windows computer at his parents' house, 
so he could do little more than look over the code and try, somehow, to reverse engineer it from his personal MacBook. But he managed to spot something. I, I, I looked at what kind of uh, Windows API call it, it implements, and one of the calls was uh, a call that's called exit process. And exit process does exactly what it what its name suggests. It, it causes the, the program, the process, to exit. Maybe, somehow, a way to stop the program in its tracks, if there was a way to activate it. Is there any way that a user can trigger the call inside the code of the malware? And, and apparently there was. So every time the malware started, it was looking for a specific file in a specific location on the system. And if that file exists, then the malware, the code will, will branch out and call exit process and NotPetya would just quit the moment it started. In other words, a kill switch, something the original developers put in to protect themselves from the havoc they knew they were about to unleash. Later, um, when the authorities were doing all of their incident response and, 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 and you know, all of that research work that went into understanding what happened, they actually found that there were a lot of machines that had that, that vaccine file created way, way, way ahead of the attack. But if the developers could do it, presumably, so could anybody else. I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Because if we can find out the name of that file, which wasn't in the code, if we can find out the name of that file, we could tell people to just put that file, like create that file, put that in that location, and that's it. You're, you're vaccinated. Eureka. All the work every cyber analyst around the world was probably doing at that moment. And here was this utterly elegant solution. And it wasn't so difficult to uncover that special file either. It was looking for a file with the same name as the executable that starts the malware, only with uh, without any suffix. So, for example, if the the the, the executable file that starts NotPetya would have been named NotPetya.exe, then the file name should have been NotPetya. He was finished. All Amit needed was the name of the file, the most basic, unexciting fact in the whole case. Easy, right? Perfc.dat, if this theory was correct, this was the key to immunizing against the world's most destructive malware. So I started, I, I went to Twitter and I wrote, hey, create this file with this name in this location on your machine, and you should be safe from not Petya. Sent. Surely the information could help his fellow researchers. Maybe it'd actually work, though he couldn't know for sure with only his MacBook. I released that tweet and I went out to the bar to meet my friends and we went out drinking. And throughout the entire evening, my phone wouldn't stop beeping because my, my, my tweet kept getting retweeted and journalists wanted to talk to me. Hmm. And, and I got so many notifications that my phone kept crashing and eventually ran out of battery. Hmm. I maybe got like 30 minutes of sleep that night because everything was so intense and my, 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 my blood was full of adrenaline, so I couldn't fall asleep. In the hours and days that followed, Amit became a minor internet celebrity as the security community rallied around his kill switch. It first started with videos, like how-to videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And it then, like someone posted a PowerShell script that does that for you. And then someone wrote um, uh, like a program that has like a very simple UI with like one button that like creates the file. 
which allowed people, you know, to, to basically download it and implement it themselves uh, more easily. Over time, the scourge of NotPetya began to fade, as the perfc file was added to as many Windows computers as humanly possible. Though there's no way to know exactly how many at the end of the day. Yeah, but I, I do know that people used it and did it. And, um, you know, before COVID, when I was still traveling a lot to conferences and stuff, I would still have people come up to me. Um, the last conference, last big conference I spoke at was a Virus Bulletin in London in 29, end of 2019, right before COVID hit. And I, I was talking about something completely different. And someone came up to me after the talk and he was like, oh, I, I, I just wanted to say that um, uh, I, I, I was following you on Twitter on that night of NotPetya and I put, on the, I put on the vaccine only to find out later that we had a few machines that uh, we didn't do that and they all got destroyed. So thank you for that. So that was interesting because, you know, even two years after, people were still remembering it. It made me appreciate that and, 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 and to... Um, sort of take pride in what we do as security researchers or security analysts or malware researchers and all of that. The work that we do has actual value and meaning out there in the, in the real world. One last fun part of the story before we go. The day after NotPetya, Amit still had a talk to give at the local university. Sleep deprived, he got on stage to talk about an IoT vulnerability he discovered a while earlier. I had journalists from CNN and, and, and all sorts of outlets just come to the conference. They came all to the conference to talk to me. <laughs> and one of the, one of the outlets was uh, Russia One, which is Rus- one of Russia's uh, nation-state-backed uh, news channels, if you can call them that way. By this point, it was pretty clear that a nation-state was behind the attack. And which nation-state it was? the one that had hacked Ukraine the year before and the year before that, Amit stood before a camera from one of its news stations with a microphone in his face. And they asked me if I know who's behind it. I I just smiled and I said, I don't know. I don't do attribution. (laughs) Oh, Um, man, that was your opportunity. We can forgive them. They wouldn't have aired that anyway. And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. This episode was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. And of course, a very special thank you to Amit Serper for sharing his story and helping to save the internet. We've been having a lot of fun putting this show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.